Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collision Point, a conversation that connects real problems with real providers and real perspectives to drive meaningful change. I'm Colin Kemble, Senior Director of Customer Success for the Acute and Payer Division at Point Click Care. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Michael Keyes, who is the VP of Health Plan Sales, and Nicole Sunder, Director of Health Plan Solutions, all at Point Click Care. We are at day two now of our annual customer summit. Nicole, you go first. Any thoughts? Hi, Colin. We're so excited to be here. Um, This is my first summit, and so I can't tell you how much... Two things. It's so exciting to be here because we're at least in, on site, in person, getting to hug people and see people, um, not only uh, colleagues, and but actually clients and across different parts of the company, uh, as we talked about, you know, coming from the acute and payer division, but actually getting some access to our uh, core point-click care clients and our uh, acute and payer clients is something that's pretty amazing. Um, and second is, is really being able to learn Um I sit in the acute and payer division and work on things all day long, but I'm learning something new every session I sit in. So that's a super exciting opportunity. That's wonderful. Michael, any thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. Uh, it's been a great uh, week so far. This also is my first summit. Um, and Point Click Care puts on a great event. Uh, I'm super psyched to be here. Also, our first time having health plans at the summit, uh, which has been exciting for Nicole and I um, to get some FaceTime with our clients, learn about what they're working on, be able to talk about some of the things that we're working on, and bring them together with our post-acute clients. The buzz is certainly palpable. Um, it's really wonderful having our SNFs, our acute partners, and our payer partners all together in one room. And, and you, you can really get a sense of the organic collaboration and thought leadership that's here. That's, that's a really unique situation, um, which leads us to the topic at hand today, the information gap in healthcare. Um, Michael, I would love to understand from your perspective, what are the most important kinds of data to collaborate on and why? Uh, Yeah, so I think what we hear from most people that we talk about is all data is important and everyone wants all of the data. Um, uh, And uh, that doesn't necessarily lead to collaboration. In fact, it kind of creates a a bunch of data that's that's not usable. So collaborating really on the insights and being able to understand um, which events, encounters, patients, members uh, require the most attention, I think, is, is where we should be focusing on in terms of collaboration. Nicole, anything to add? What are the most important kinds of data we need to collaborate on and why? Well, I think what we hear often is really about everyone wanting access to all data points. And when we think through what that actually means, it's not that they actually want every piece of data, but it is about having visibility into the things that they need in order for them to do the things that they need to do. We talk about that with health plans very regularly. We talk about that with all of our clients, actually, on a pretty regular basis. And so I think as we talk about uh, what are the most important kinds of data, it's really that information that helps to drive action and the ability to be able to monitor and manage the different parts of the care continuum or a particular workflow uh, and who's responsible for that piece. Um, And why it's important is it creates efficiency. It helps us with some of the staffing issues that we know are happening. Uh, It really helps to drive the who's on first and making sure that it's super clear as to what the outcome is that we're all trying to drive towards and and how it's supposed to happen. Uh, Just a quick follow-up there. Uh, It sounds like there is variability in what our payer partners are looking for in the data that we can surface via our skilled nursing data assets and post-acute data assets and with our acute data assets. 
Um, to what degree do you see variability health plan by health plan in terms of the things that they're interested in seeing and managing and incorporating into their workflows? Well, I would actually even take that up a level. I don't even think it's just health plan specific. I think if we think about how it looks and feels in a particular state or how a particular Medicaid agency runs their components, um, it's really about trying to understand what are the pain points that are trying to be closed or what data is or isn't available today and what structure do we need in order to make it as effective and efficient as possible so that they can do the things that they want to do. And so I think there's a health plan by health plan component, there's a market by market component, and there's a what are what is actually trying to be solved that drives all of that, which again it leads to some of the information gap that we're talking about. If I could jump in on that also, I think I don't think it's necessarily a variability in the data that they're looking for, but it, there is a variability in their sophistication. And even the most sophisticated health plans are still figuring out what information they need and what they're going to do with it once they receive it. Um, and that leads to the ver- leads to the variability. And and part of the gap may just be. Um, that this data for so long was not available, uh, and once once it's received, uh, the user needs to know what to do with it. Uh, and and I, we're at a point right now where where everyone's trying to figure that out. To that point, um, we have made some strides in closing the gap. We have some normalized data standards. Um, we're growing larger repositories nationwide. Um, if we stopped here. What's the risk if we stayed the status quo moving forward? Michael, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. We actually just uh, were, were meeting with health plans earlier today, and they discussed exactly the same thing. There's a standard, for example, in an HL7 ADT feed, uh, but what they're realizing as they try and take action on that data is it doesn't contain all of the elements that they need. So the risk in stopping where we are now is that the data will be less actionable, um, or the information will be less actionable, right? And the outcomes will uh, will not be as positive. I want to add onto that too. It, it's making an assumption that where we're at today is what's going to drive the cost of healthcare going forward. And so we recognize, and, and we got hit really hard with the pandemic that it sh- that it needs to be nimble and the ability to be able to shift and pivot not only the data sources that we need, but what pieces of information are required in order to help to make some decisions to help to support the healthcare ecosystem. Uh, as we see, you know, more seniors come into the to the uh, population, as we see more expensive care, it's really going to be how do we use the standard structure that we know that we know live by today but continue to create some of that sophistication like Michael mentioned earlier to drive towards that ability to be able to pivot if and when we need to. And it's important to note really we're talking about the most basic data elements right now, ADTs, EMR access, Right when you think about how you actually manage a person or a population, there's so much more data that we need to to, to mine and access. Biometrics, uh, my Apple Watch, for example, is all information that can feed and help uh, a user, whether that be a provider or a plan, engage a patient who is vulnerable or becoming vulnerable. Okay, let's play a fun hypothetical here. So we live in a utopian society where all healthcare data is centralized and normalized. And all payers have access to any data types that they would like in any format. What do we stand to gain? I think it's really about uh, 
a couple of things. We, we talk a lot about the triple aim or the quadruple aim and really trying to drive not only the member experience, the total cost of care, the provide what the impact it has on providers and, and the infrastructure that we have built today. And so what we what we stand to gain is not only building efficiency in a pretty broken system, but the ability to be able to predict, uh, create some of that uh, nimbleness that I had mentioned a little bit earlier and helping to really create an opportunity for healthcare to be personalized person-centered, individualized around what the person thinks is important and really use that information to help to drive that experience to ensure that they're not only engaged with the people that they would want or need to be like a primary care physician or a behavioral health provider, as an example, but also being able to reach across the aisle um, and include their community health worker or their uh, in-home caregiver to be part of that collaborative conversation so that it feels as seamless as possible for them and that people don't continue to walk around and go, healthcare so hard. I don't understand health. I don't understand what I'm getting a bill for. Um, I don't know how to find a PCP. Um, like these are kind of fundamental things that should be pretty easy to do, and today they're not. Yeah, I mean, I, Nicole said it great, but simply put, we, we stand to gain better outcomes at lower costs. Well put. I have a pretty weighty statement here from the CIO of the World Health Organization. I'd love to dive in a little bit. They said, in the financial sector, data is the new gold. In the healthcare sector, data is the new blood. So we need to make sure that we have principles and policies around how we manage and handle it, how we ensure ethics, how we monetize or demonetize health data. How do we ensure that the principles around management of data address the challenges that we have today? So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but first I'd like to, to dive in by asking Nicole, in what ways has the way that we've approached the health data gap caused the gap. Well, I think it's interesting that that this particular C CIO indicated that it's the new blood. So when we talk about blood, right, it's like the thing that pumps through and like facilitates everything, but it has to like work in order for that to be functional. Uh, we're at a point now where uh, some of the decisions that have been made and have been been driven by policy, have been driven by competitive the competitive nature of healthcare, um, user experience. There's a whole slew of reasons why, uh, but it comes down to the fact that it's difficult uh, to create that standardization until you're having the conversations about why it matters. And so unless you understand the win-win-win for everyone involved, uh, providers, payers, the member or patient themselves, um, it's really difficult to be able to say, this is something that we're going to invest in to standardize if there isn't a very clear vision or outcome. And so I think the way in which it has happened up to this point has not been as collaborative as what we've seen here at the summit is really bringing the right people at the table to have the conversation about what is that win-win-win where is the intersection and how do we use that to help to drive everything that we're driving towards to make sure we're all walking in the same direction? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I'd agree with that as well. You know, what we see is that there's a hesitancy to share data coming out of your system, whether it be a provider's EMR or a health plan's claims adjudication system. Uh, for a number of reasons, um, in part at the highest level, there are security concerns, and we all go through the most rigorous security testing um, and high trust certification uh, so that we can share data, but there's still that hesitancy. There's also a competitive nature, right? A health plan doesn't want to share their claims data because there's uh, um, competitive intel about how they pay claims. Um, <clears throat> a provider may not want to share their data um, for fear of uh, having an adverse effect on their payment. And all of those policies have kind of gotten us where we are now. Yeah, I can't help but think of the High Tech Act when I read this quote, where we were pushing physicians off of paper and into electronic EMRs, which flooded the industry with money. 
and, and led to a bunch of substandard EMRs that were really repurposed forms-based applications. And we couldn't normalize the data in the way that we envisioned. And it actually created a lot of harm um, for legislation that ultimately at the surface seemed like a good thing to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so how do we fix it? Where do we go from here? Michael, you first. <laughs> uh, great question, Colin. Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure what the fix is, but I do think it it, it involves bringing all stakeholders together um, to come to a common consensus on what should be shared at what point and for what reason. Um, we talked about that today, and we've done that when, in some of the markets we work in, in bringing together a clinical consensus group, um, and have had, uh, to great effect actually, um, and and really seen better outcomes. Um, but it does involve getting everyone on the same page. On the the topic of outcomes, Nicole. Why are readmissions always top of mind? Well, I think as we think through what it feels like in, in the healthcare continuum or an experience for a particular person, it's sometimes easy to talk about the event or an episode. And that could mean something like I live at, at home in the, in, in the community. I have an event that requires me to go to the emergency department. Um, I end up getting admitted to an inpatient stay. I'm there for a couple of days. I have another event that puts me in the intensive care unit. I end up needing to be discharged to a skilled nursing facility. Then I end up going back home. What I, what I look like and what my experience is the day that I get discharged from that skilled nursing facility is so drastically different from the day that I uh, ended up in the emergency department. All of those particular points across that care is extremely expensive, creates the opportunity for uh, the need to be able to coordinate different components of what I'm going to need as that kind of user patient. Um, and having the discharge plan be supported and helpful can only ensure that I don't end up back in that in the emergency department or that inpatient stay. And so I think as we think through like why readmissions are so important is it's not only um, what that experience is and what the risk is for me going back to the hospital or needing additional care, but it is really about being able to manage cost. And so I know Michael summed it up. It was clinical outcomes at the most cost effective or in the most cost effective way. And when we see that, you know, readmissions is one way where there's p potential significant upstream opportunity to address that particular gap. Yeah, I'd agree. If I, it, I always bring it back to cost, right? Readmissions are costly. Um, it's an experience that a patient doesn't want to or doesn't need to go through. It takes a bed from a hospital that could be used for someone that, that needs it um, more. Uh, so I think all of those things together align with, with what Nicole was saying, um, and, and it comes down to cost and patient experience. So clearly the, a part of the solution in addressing how to lower readmissions or prevent them Part of, part of that solution is data, right? Of course, we need to know what are the indicators of someone who has a probability to readmit. What else? Like, what is the other part of the equation that we need to have to prevent readmissions? Great question. Data alone is not going to solve the problem. And, and you're right, it does help um, us to determine who, who may be at risk uh, of a readmission and why. But uh, the data needs to be, be, excuse me, be acted on. Uh, and that involves... Um, the provider, it involves potentially the patient's family members, the health plan can engage the patient, um, all uh, in a way to ensure that the discharge plan is followed, um, followed through, that the patient has the support they need once they're discharged from the hospital um, and stays healthy enough to keep them out of the hospital. Well, and I think something to add to that, Michael, is really about thinking through what are the incentives or disincentives to the industry itself as it relates to being able to not only use that data, but taking the action and who's going to take that action? Why are they going to take that action? And what does that mean for them? 
Um, so I think there's multiple components of that and really understanding what that shared vision is on those outcomes and helping to do some of that reduction aligns with the incentives, right? Removing of penalties, as an example, um, really understanding how to do that at scale uh, for everyone who's involved in, in that readmission process. You know, I mentioned that there were multiple points across the board and there's the, the member themselves or patient themselves and what they're going to do as they go home. Uh, I think as we think through being able to use data to identify those people who are most at risk for readmission, what we tend to do is say, oh, this person happens to be at a high readmission risk and assume that everybody needs to be treated equally or that we need to reach out to all of them. Um, what, what happens when you start to be able to get into the detail of the what does it look like at scale or at a, at a whole population to really be able to drill into this particular person is not only at risk because of all the data or indicators, but we know the fact that they don't have transportation or that they don't have any family support or they don't have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do we use that again to drive some of this actionability in a way that focuses on the right people to, to get to that ultimate outcome? Yeah, I think uh, I'd also add that it, it, it it relies or requires us all to understand who's responsible to take action on what data. Um, and is that the provider? Is it the patient? Is it the health plan? Um, is it some downstream provider? Uh, and, and that's a part of the gap that we're experiencing. Um, as there's a handoff from one setting to the next, um, there is not necessarily a coordinated care plan such that each individual actor knows what action they need to take. We'll take it up a level. And, and Michael, I'll start with you. Um, both you, Michael and Nicole, are two of the most well-connected people I know, at least, in the, the health plan world, um, with good relationships across the top 10 national plans, and who only knows how many of the regional plans. What are some of the biggest pain points you're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great point. I think um, so the, the pain points still revolve around accessing information and understanding what to do with it. Uh, and Plans are moving quickly to solve for that problem. Another pain point, though, um, is, is, is being able to share the information that the health plan has generated. Um, and, and frankly, the health plan has the most complete information about a person. It may be a bit old because it's based on claims, but they have the most comprehensive view of a patient's medical um, background. And, and, and they derive insights off of that background. They lack the ability to share that with a provider who can take action on it. Um, and whether that be around managing a person's care or improving quality scores or risk scores, um, they're, they're largely lacking the ability to get that information in front of a provider, provider's eyes, so that they can take action on it when the patient's sitting in front of them. I, I love that. And I want to add, I think there's a couple of additional components as we think through what, what does the industry actually mean. And so I think we are making some assumptive about the fact that it's either the, the medical community or the you know, physical health and behavioral health component. We know that over the last few years, we've talked a lot about social determinants of health, health equity, um, really being able to broaden what it means to be like a fully functioning healthcare ecosystem that's focused on whole person care. And so what we see across the industry is really that there is uh, a difference in the maturity level of the ability not only to contribute information, but really be able to consume it. And so even if you've identified the fact that there's a community health worker or a, a caregiver at home that wants or needs to take action, their ability to be able to get access to that information and or be able to contribute it doesn't exist in a standard way right now. And so I think it's the, that combination of that maturity model and really being able to get there and recognizing that healthcare is a competitive 
business, how do we help to identify the couple of things where we can all agree this should be pretty standard? This is a standard assessment that we're going to use. What we do with that standard assessment result right, might differentiate a little bit from health plan to health plan or PCP to PCP, but understanding where to invest some of the uh, standardization and infrastructure is definitely something that feels very top of mind and is, is still a current pain point. I think a common theme I'm hearing in both of your answers is engagement. And it sounds like there's three legs to the stool. There's provider engagement, member engagement, and payer engagement, which folks often forget about. Uh, what tools are available to address these kinds of issues and promote engagement? And you can say Point Click Care's value-based care module. <laughs> We're going to say Point Click Care a lot, I think, in this in this section. Uh, I'm going to start, and I'll talk a little bit about member engagement, and then I'll turn it over to Michael. Uh, but really, from a member engagement perspective, I think it's really important as we're talking about not only information and taking action, but to remember that each, each person has the opportunity to make decisions about their own health care. Uh, as we talk about a couple of these things, it's great for us to be able to use our current tools to share bi-directional important information about that person. But if that person can't show up or doesn't show up to their appointment, having access to that information may not necessarily have an impact. And so really trying to build trust uh, within the healthcare ecosystem itself, um, ensuring that we're taking into consideration health literacy and their understanding of the healthcare ecosystem. Getting back to what I had talked about earlier was like if we lived in that utopian world and it was easy to understand and easy to select your PCP and it was someone that you trusted, that experience looks very different. And so how do we help to build using those tools in order to be able to say this particular person is new to this service and has never used it before and make sure that that education looks very different uh, to someone who's been coming for years. Take a dialysis as an example. Someone's first appointment at dialysis and someone who's been on for three years should look different. Um, and how does that how does that help to ensure that that person keeps coming back and is engaged within that ecosystem? Um, and it's using some of the tools that they have available to themselves to be able to make those decisions um, and do it in a way that helps to support those positive outcomes that we've been talking about. Great. Thanks, Nicole. I, I totally agree. And I'll, I'll take the provider piece. Uh, there, are, there are a host of tools that help um, payers engage the providers in their network, and Point Click Care has um, has some of those, and we work, as you mentioned, with all of the national plans um, in that regard. Uh, that said, the provider needs there there needs to be an incentive that is um, significant enough uh, that the provider does want to engage, uh, and <clears throat> there are a host of ways that uh, in which. Uh, a provider can be incentive, uh, incentivized. Excuse me. Just uh, simply put, there are resource allocations. If we could automate the sharing of information, there is an incent that that incentive enough. Um, maybe, excuse me. That incentive, <laughs> that incentive may be enough for a provider um, to engage. But there are also value-based care contracting incentives. Um, in which a provider who is taking action on behalf of a patient and saving costs or improving quality should be incentivized to, to take those actions. And what we'll see over time is that there will be less utilization, um, but the provider will be compensated based on the outcomes rather than uh, on just the fact that they've had an encounter. Michael, I want to add to that really quick. It's something that you and I talk about all the time, and it's really about um, how do you help to not only incentivize but make easier the processes that are taking place in these different um, organizations. And so one of the things that we talk about is how do we help to surface things in real time that ensure that the health plan or the PCP office or the skilled nursing facility themselves aren't kind of tripping over themselves and doing actions, right, that aren't, aren't appropriate for that current time period. Uh, one of the examples that we do <laughs> that we 
we go back and forth on a lot is uh, being able to send real time information to a health plan who has a campaign about ensuring that they have uh, accurate contact information or trying to alert their uh, members that they have access to free flu vaccines. But that person is actively having a crisis and is in the emergency department getting texts from their health plan about the fact that they should be getting a flu vaccine. Like how, how does that experience feel? And as, as we're talking about engagement, it's really the how that that's not helping us to deploy resources across the board in a way that's actually supportive to the member themselves or the patient. Um, and so that experience is bad all around. So like, how do we fix some of those like bad experiences to get us to where we want to be yeah and the, the beauty of customer events like we have today is that we have the pairs in the room with the post-acute facilities and the acute facilities and we're having conversations just like we're having at this table now with folks where we're actually solutioning and solving um, the buzz is palpable it's really exciting we should probably be getting back so michael nicole thank you for your time thanks colin so glad to be here thanks and thank you all for tuning in this is collusion point until next time mm-hmm.